we start this. All right, can you hear me all right? Yes. All right. So tonight's topic is the second talk in our Lenten series on the four last things. And I'd like to remind everyone the purpose of these talks is to help us grow in holiness. For that purpose, I would like to point out that Father Tufi, our pastor who's sitting in the back over there, uh, agreed to my request, and he is going to be available for confession during our Q&A session in the church. He has a screen divider with a kneeler, and you're free to kneel behind that screen or sit with him face to face, whichever uh, you prefer. He's a great confessor, uh, and uh, I can assure you, as he reminded us many, many times, there isn't a sin that he hasn't heard already. So please uh, make use of this time, if you, especially if you haven't been to confession in a long time. I do remind you that the church requires us as Catholics to go to confession at least once a year. So take that opportunity to go to confession. It will be made available for you uh, tonight, which is uh, absolutely wonderful. All right, tonight we're going to be talking about hell. And I will not hide from you that my intent is to scare you. I want you scared. I absolutely want you scared to go to hell. Uh, many of us have a very vague notion of what hell is. I'm going to crisp that up for you, pun intended. And so you understand what we're dealing with when the reality is and the wonderful thing, though, is that avoiding hell is not difficult. And I'm going to give you a recipe to avoid hell and go to heaven. And that is part of God's mercy for us. So, what are we going to be talking about? Well, before we, be, we, before we get into the meat of it, let's start with a prayer. If you can follow me on page 3. The prayer. So I'd like you to stand up. This is a prayer by St. Ephraim, which I thought was appropriate. And let's pray together. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings, you have power over life and death. You know what is secret and hidden, and neither our thoughts nor feelings are concealed from you. Cure me of duplicity. I have done evil before you. Now my life declines from day to day, and my sins increase. O Lord, God of souls and bodies, you know the extreme frailty of my soul and my flesh. Grant me strength in my weakness, O Lord, and sustain me in my misery. Give me a grateful soul that I may never cease to recall your benefits, O Lord, most bountiful. Be not mindful of my many sins, but forgive me all my misdeeds. O Lord, this day not my prayer, the prayer of a wretched sinner. Sustain me with your grace until the end, that it may protect me as in the past. It is your grace which has taught me wisdom. Blessed are they who follow her ways, for they shall receive the crown of glory. In spite of my unworthiness, I praise you and I glorify you, O Lord, for your mercy to me is without limit. You have been my help and my protection. 
May the name of your majesty be praised forever. To you, our God, be glory. Amen. Please be seated. Our agenda on the next page is that we're going to be talking about the scriptural basis for hell, the necessity of hell, hell and God's mercy, which is a topic that is very popular and common and recurring. How could a merciful God accept to have people consigned to hell for eternity? The nature of hell, and then how to avoid hell, and we'll end up with Q&A. So, let's begin with the scriptural basis for hell. The first thing I would, like all, I would like to remind all of us is that there are really four ways in which the word hell is used in the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament. It is used as the place of punishment for the damned and the demons. That's the meaning that we are going to be studying tonight. It is also used as the limbo of infants, which is the place where those who die in original sin alone and without personal mortal sin are confined. And like I said last time during Q&A, Pope Francis did establish a commission a few years back to study the limbo of infants. And as far as I know, that commission has not come out yet with recommendations. The difficulty with the limbo of infants is that Without baptism, you cannot be saved. You absolutely require baptism to be saved, whether by blood, by desire, or by water. And those children are not baptized, so then what do you do? And that's the conundrum. Uh, And so far, we've basically come up with this idea of a limbo of infants. The limbo of the fathers where the souls of the just who died before Christ awaited their admission to heaven. In the letter of St. Peter, St. Peter said that Christ went into the netherworld, and then one place that he did go was this particular limbo, where he opened the gates of heaven for them. And so, after the resurrection of Christ, this place is empty. There's nobody in there anymore. And finally, purgatory, which is going to be the topic of our next study, not next week, the week after. Those are the four ways in which Hell was used, and incidentally, this is a hint for you, as you're wondering sometimes, hey, where in the Bible is purgatory used? Well, it's, it's actually used under the name, under the word hell. But you have to distinguish those four meanings in the scriptures, and we'll do that when we cover this last, next time. All right. Two particular words that I'd like to remind you of, because they appear in the scriptures, Sheol, Hades, and Gehenom, Gehenna. So, Sheol in the Old Testament is the kingdom of the dead. Everybody, good and evil, was known as Sheol. And so you see that in Genesis 35, 37, 38, uh, 35, sorry, and in Numbers 16, 30. And it covers the limbo of the fathers and hell in a strict sense. So it's limbo of the fathers and hell. That's what Sheol means whenever you see it, or Hades the Greek term for it. In the New Testament, Gehenna, Gehenom, is used specifically to speak of hell proper. And Gehenom is the valley of the sons of Hinnom. And it was infamous because in that valley, which is south of Jerusalem, one of the kings of of Judea sacrificed infants 
to the god Moloch. And that place then was defied by Josias. This is the king who did that. And you find that in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 10 and following, it was cursed by the prophet Jeremiah after what has happened. And that's in Jeremiah 7, 31, 33. And held in abomination by the Jews. So in the times of Christ, it was used as a discharge for garbage from where you actually get the world Baal-zebub. Because literally, for those of you who understand Lebanese, Baal-zebele, the Lord of garbage. It was a very derogatory way of speaking of the devil. All right? And so when they said to Jesus about Baal-zebub that he actually um, uh, cast out demons, it was doubly insulting because they're referring to, basically, they're saying he's a lord of garbage. Okay? Um, other names of hell in the New Testament, and we're going to cover some of those, place of torment, furnace of fire, unquenchable fire, everlasting fire, external darkness, and a second death. And by the way, um, you don't have to take notes because I will be posting that, the notes in the next, uh, when I send the next um, uh, newsletter. So if you haven't subscribed yet, please go to Corbono and subscribe, and then you will get um, that um, deck that you see here uh, in the newsletter. All right. So here are some scriptural basis for hell. Um, and I'm going to point out to you straight away that 70%, 70% of everything we know about hell from the Bible is from the New Testament. Specifically, mostly from the lips of Jesus. So anyone who has this idea that the Old Testament is about the wrathful and vengeful God and the New Testament is about the gentle and merciful God, reset your keys. 70% of the teaching of hell comes from the Lord. So, let's go. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be liable to the hell of fire. That is the hell we're talking about. Okay? It is not my intention right now to go and explain each of those, because then we'll be here for a couple of days. But um, I am keying off on the references to hell that are, that are in the scriptures, because there are some who somehow think that, well, hell, well, hell may not exist, or it's empty, or it's only for the demons, or it's not going to be eternal. That is at variance with scripture. Uh, Matthew 5, 29, 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And again, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better than you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I do want to indicate straight away Jesus was not talking literally. He's not asking us to amputate ourselves. He's using very strong imagery to tell us how important and how serious we must take our salvation. Right? Custody the eyes and making sure that everything we do is 
geared towards His glory and then out of love for Him. Right? Next page, Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. So those are people who persecute us. They kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And you notice the way the subject is uh, perfunctory. It is not clearly indicated. Fear him. Well, who is him? Right? It is uh, one popular tendency I've seen is people think, oh, it's the devil. Right? But the demons do not have power to throw any one of us in hell. They have the power to suggest, to influence, to tempt, but they can't throw us in hell. As we saw last chapter, last, um, during the last talk, the only one who can consign us to hell is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is asking us, he is commanding us to fear him. And let's sit here for a second. Jesus is commanding us to fear him. I am letting it sit because one of the big problems we have today is that our conception of who Jesus is is at variance what scripture is telling us. And we need to adjust those. And then watch this blistering curse. Jesus right here is angry. He is hot, red, angry. He is Middle Eastern angry. All right, this is why he could never be, I don't know, in Sweden. He had to be in the Middle East. This is not something you can say with a quiet and gentle British tone. Woe to you, woe to you, cursed are you, I curse you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. By the way, while I'm on a topic, here is one sin I think you ask priests and you'll find out very few of us confess. Hypocrisy. And yet, it is one of the most commonly mentioned sin on the lips of our Lord. Hypocrisy. So I would enjoin to you to add that to your examination of conscience. Because if Jesus is talking about it, chances are we tend to be far more hypocrites than we think we are. Something to think about. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you traverse sea and land to make a single proselyte, meaning somebody who is going to follow you. He cannot convert, he cannot become a Jew, but he's going to come and then follow all the laws of the temple. That's a proselyte, okay? And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And so, something to think about. Hypocrites. Next page. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it, 
to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me, then he will say to those in his, at his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That word is right there. Eternal fire. There is no end to this. And this is again our Lord speaking. This is basically taken from the judgment of the nations at the end of the time, the general judgment, when he judges everybody. All the nations will be judged. 2 Thessalonians 5.9 This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be made worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. St. Paul assumes we are suffering. If you're not suffering, start. That's all i got to say. Since indeed, now watch the language. This is St. Paul talking, and he is not qualifying what he's saying. He doesn't feel he needs to explain it. We've grown oversensitive and too soft. Since indeed, God deems it just. It is the justice of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. The psalm says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That side of God is almost never heard of these days. But yes, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And St. Paul, God deems it just. It's part of God's justice to afflict those who are afflicting you. So everything is happening to you. Anything that you suffer from someone is seen, watched, and noticed. And so, tremble in fear and pray earnestly for those who afflict you, asking God to forgive them because you do not want anyone to fall under the judgment and the justice of God. Which is why Christ enjoins us in our Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Because it's a fearsome thing, St. Paul tells us, to fall in the hands of the Lord. By the way, it is a grave matter, it's a mortal sin, to wish for someone to go to hell. So, you know the expression, go to hell? You might want to think twice before you use it. And to grant rest with us to you who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's inflicting vengeance? The Lord himself. They shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of our Lord and from the glory of his might. I mean, you can be more explicit and more clear about that. Most people these days will feel uncomfortable with this language. It's not inclusive, see? 
So um, you've got to have to really readjust the way you think about the Lord. And the reason I'm saying that is that if you really understand His vengeance and His justice, then you're going to be truly grateful for His mercy. Because if you have a Lord who is a wimp, who cares if He's merciful? But if He is vengeful and merciful, you will appreciate His mercy way more. Okay, Revelation 21.8 But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And Revelation 20.10 And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet where and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I'm highlighting false prophet because at least the false prophet we know is human. Because otherwise you might say, oh, that's for the demons. Not quite. Right. Um, there are way more references than what I just quote for you. I just selected a few. This is all New Testament. So hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not extinguished, the unquenchable fire, the furnace of fire, the everlasting pain where there will be darkness, wailing and gnashing of teeth. All of these are on the lips for the most part of our Lord himself. I can't stress that enough. Is, is Jesus merciful? Absolutely. 100% all the time for those who... Say it again. That's it. For those who repent. And for those who don't, he will wait patiently, but eventually he won't. So what is key for us? What should we do every day? Repent and be converted. What did he come when he came? What was the announcement? Repent and believe in this order. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's our mission. To repent and to believe. All right. So in conclusion about the scriptural basis for hell. Most of what we know about hell in the Bible is found in the New Testament on the lips of our Lord. And then scripture therefore attests that hell is a real place. A place of fire, torment and darkness. Then those who are consigned to hell will remain, will remain so for eternity. There is no coming back. Here's the teachings of the church on a topic. The, the souls of those who die in condition of personal moral sin enter hell. In, in the condition of personal moral sin enter hell. It's defeated. This is the highest certainty of dogmas we have. The punishment of hell lasts for all eternity. Defeated. The punishment of the damned is proportioned to each one's guilt. It's found in the Union Councils of Lyon, Lyon the, uh, Lyon the Second, I don't know if it's in English, and Florence. And um, it is dependent on the, pas the passage in Scripture in Matthew 11:22, where Christ is upbraiding Chorazin and Bethsaida 
comparing them to what happened, what would have happened had he essentially went and um, preached in Tyre and Sidon. Okay. Here are a few passages from the fathers. And the first one is, uh, shows St. Uh, Augustine's spirit. What did God do before he made heaven and earth? Some jest that he was preparing hell for those who pry into such questions. St. <laughs> Augustine. I think he was getting a little tired from me asking those questions. All right. Here's one that is very interesting by St. John Chrysostom. In our churches, <clears throat> in our churches, we hear countless discourses on eternal punishments, on rivers of fire, on venomous worm, on bonds that cannot be burst, on exterior darkness. So that used to be taught way more than it's been taught today for a variety of reasons. And I think we need to have some balance, and it's nice if we can bring the topic a little bit more, because it will remind us of the dangers that we face. What could be more pitiable than the fate of those people who, on account of neglect of their own salvation, key off on these words from St. John Chrysostom, why did they go to hell? Not because they murdered or killed or didn't pay their taxes. They neglected their own salvation neglected their own salvation. That's all it takes. What is the vice behind neglecting your own salvation? Slothfulness. Being slothful. Eh, I have time. Oh, I can't go to Mass on Sunday. There's a football game. We have a social event. I can't go to Mass. I'm not going to sit and study Scripture. I have other things to do. Slothfulness. That's all it takes. Because slothfulness builds up hardness of heart. Kills charity in us. And makes us self-centered. We become... Complainers, we complain about anything. You want to know if you're slothful? Watch how often you complain. If you're married, ask your better half. Do I complain too much? If that person rolls their eyes and sigh, you're slothful. Take it seriously. Complain about the weather, complain about traffic, complain about your work, complain about how busy you are, complain about how you're not busy, complaining about COVID, complaining about this, complaining about that. You're slothful. So how do you, how do you fight slothfulness? Gratitude. Every time, every time you feel like complaining, bite your tongue, and praise the Lord. That's how you're going to fight it. Because slothfulness kills the spirit of joy in you. And the Lord loves a joyful giver. Bite your tongue and praise the Lord. Do not neglect your salvation. Watch what you're doing day in, day out. We are all in a spiritual combat. 
This is boot camp. This entire life is boot camp. And you have people in nice parts of this town who apparently compete with each other on cars and dresses and homes and young. We are like a bunch of ants who are building these things on top of a pile of manure. And it all stinks, but we're happy about it. This is boot camp. You're here for a very short period of time and it's going to determine where you're going to end. Focus on what is important. Focus on your salvation. Everything else is a waste of time. Almighty God, being a God of love, does not gratify his anger by torturing wretched sinners. So hell is not there because God is going, na 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 na. You should have listened to me. That, no, we're going to understand a little bit more the, the purpose of hell a little later. But however, since he is a God of justice, the punishment of the wicked cannot, listen carefully to what St. Gregory the Great is saying, he is God of justice, the punishment of the wicked cannot satisfy him even if it continues eternally. What is implied here is that even in the punishment in hell, God is applying mercy. St. Gregory again, if God threatened us without ever intending to fulfill his threat, meaning if he says, like Christ said, if you do those things, you'll end up in hell, and if he never fulfills this threat, we'll call him deceitful. He's not being honest. Instead of merciful, and that would be sacrilegious. If man made himself deserving an eternal evil, it was because he drowned within himself a good that could have been eternal. St. Augustine. And the last one by St. Caesar of Arles. If you refuse to throw aside your sin, meaning if you don't go confess it and then repent from it, you will perish with it. For sin cannot go unpunished unless it is forgiven through the cross of our Lord, right? Through confession. God wants to kill sin, not to strike the sinner. You, however, love and embrace your sin. That which might have perished without you is going to perish with you. Because you might have received heaven if, you, if your sin have perished. By keeping it, you will suffer eternal punishment. In the Gospel of St. John, there is a striking conversation between Jesus and a paralytic. That paralytic is lying on the side of the road right next to the pool where there is an angel that comes down and then disturbs the water. And whoever is in it is healed. But that poor man is not fast enough, so he never makes it there. St. John tells us this man has been lay, lying there for 38 years. A symbolic number because Israel did not spend 40 years in the desert. They spent 38 years. Exactly 38 years. And so here he is lying down. Essentially, he represents Israel, but he's a real guy. And here Jesus is walking by. He sees him. And in this case, it is not the guy who's asking Jesus for something. Always a reminder 
that Jesus is the one who comes and meets us in all our miseries and needs before we even open our mouth. Nobody's praying for this guy. Nobody's interceding for him. Nobody's saying anything. Jesus comes, stands right there, and what does he say? Do you wish to be healed? Now, I want you to put yourself in the sandals of that guy. You've been lying there for 38 years. And as this guy shows up and says, do you wish to be healed? I don't know about you, but, you know, given my temper, I might say, no, I really love eating the dust from the shoes of everybody who's walking by. Like, what kind of question is this? No, I really enjoy laying down here on the dust. But why is Jesus asking that question? Do you wish to be healed? Here's why. That guy laying down there is wealthy. He has the right to grumble. He has the right to complain. He has the right to... He's a victim. We live in an age where everybody wants to be the victim. And everybody wants to complain. And everyone says how injustice has been done to them. It's wealth. If Jesus heals him, he can't complain anymore. Right? He might have to go to, I don't know, Del Taco and find a job. He's going to be responsible. Whereas up to this point, he's the victim. You see that? That's what St. Caesarus of Arles is talking about. Oftentimes, we love our sins. And how we know we love our sins? Very easy. When someone comes and pokes us where our sin is, how do we react? We become lawyers. And we begin justifying why. Right? Hey, this is your fourth bowl of broccoli. Don't you think you should stop? What do you mean? It's my fourth bowl of broccoli. So what? I bought the broccoli. What's the problem with you? I didn't get money from you. I paid for it. It's my broccoli. You can do with it whatever. I am petting my sin. That's what I'm doing. That's all I'm doing. Saint Joseph, Joseph, do not fear to take the woman. Boom. Not a word. Not one word of complaint. Not one, nothing. He does as the angel told him. Joseph, get up, take your wife and the child and go to Egypt. This is like, Joseph, you know, get up, take your child and go to Mexico. Not where in Mexico, there's no GPS, there's no Google map, there's nothing. It's in the middle of the night. What does St. Joseph do? Well, wait a minute. Can't we just wait till it's morning? I mean, it's night. I'm, I... It's a reasonable objection. It's a reasonable objection. All our objections are reasonable. Very reasonable. That's the problem. Got up and went. St. Charville. St. Charville. One day, St. Charbel, Father Charbel, is helping this monk with a fire. That monk got a little tired of Father Charbel for whatever reason, and then, being upset, told Father Charbel, 
why don't you just go on that other hill over there and pick wood? He basically wanted to send him away from him. That evening, the Father Superior, where's, where's Father Charbel? Nobody knows. Following morning, Father Charbel is coming back from that hill, having brought the wood. Think about that. Think about that sort of obedience. Think about the immediacy of the answer. Read the Gospel of Mark, the word that is repeated. Immediately they. Immediately they. Immediately they left everything and followed him. Immediately. Can you do anything immediately? Or are you going to be passive-aggressive about it? Hey, we have to leave. Well, wait, I need to do this. I need to do that. And this other thing. And then comb my hair. And wear my shoes. And then immediately. Neglect. 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 All right. Now let's talk a little bit about the necessity of hell. The question is, is it fitting for divine justice to impose eternal punishment on sinners? So here's the question. This is the question that is in many of our minds, right? Is it just to punish people eternally for sins they committed during their brief time on earth? Deuteronomy 25.2 A man is to be punished with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Therefore, eternal punishment for brief temporal sins seems unjust. Like, what could we do on this planet that deserves forever and ever and ever? Right? I mean, we don't understand forever. You realize that, right? Because one day, all of us will be one billion years old. If you understand what one billion years old mean, talk to me, I'll give you a falafel sandwich. I have no clue what that means. A million, maybe I kind of get an inkling, but I'm not even sure. What is one billion? And one billion is nothing in eternity. Nothing. One trillion. You're going to be one trillion years old. You'll never go away, ever. So why is it that if we do something here, we end up in hell forever? Now, I'm going to show you how that uh, hypocrisy I told you about shows up in our minds, but we're not necessarily aware of it. Watch the next page. I'm just going to substitute basically one word to what you see here. And let's see how we all react to this. Okay, hold on. What did I do? Hmm, maybe I missed the page. Okay, I'm going to tell you about it because it looks like I missed the page. Here's what we're going to do. Watch what I'm going to say now. Is it fitting for divine justice to grant eternal happiness on sinners? Is it just to give people eternal happiness for good acts they committed during their brief time on earth. Should we receive 
eternal happiness in heaven for brief temporal good acts we performed on earth. Do you see how we want to exaggerate God's mercy in one direction towards hell? And we want to shrink it when it comes to heaven? In other words, most of us have no problem if God extends eternal, eternal happiness based on good deeds we've done here, which are really limited in scope. Whatever good we did or we do is mired in venial sins. It's never perfect, unless you're the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's never perfect. It all has issues in it, at least in our intentions. And yet, for those mere small acts, God is willing to give us eternal joy in heaven. And we're good with that. But if somebody commits a sin, we're not good with the fact they're going to be in, in hell forever. But now do you see if God is just, that he should not grant the saints in heaven eternal happiness unless he's willing to grant eternal punishment for the damned in hell? You see that? So God's justice, demand, justice demands hell. Otherwise, heaven is unjust. Okay. Here are top three sins from bad to worse, meaning three is bad and one is the worst. There's not the type of sins that people think about as being the worst possible sins to commit. And yet they are. Blasphemy against the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. Joseph. Our Lady is the Mother of God and St. Joseph the Father, the foster father of Christ. The two human beings he loves above all else. The way you measure the gravity of a sin is commensurate to the innocence of the victim. That's how you measure the gravity of the sin. How innocent is the victim? I'll give you a simple example before I go through this list here. Suppose you have two people sitting here, a millionaire and a little girl. Let's call her Amy. Little girl, Amy is six years old and she's poor and she spent two months gathering pennies to be able to buy a doll that costs five dollars. So now she has five dollars in her tin can, in pennies. The millionaire is sitting here. Is stealing five dollars from Amy as grave as stealing five dollars from the millionaire? Who said yes? Why? Ah, perfect. Thank you. Five dollars is five dollars. But the way we measure sin is in proportion to the innocence of the victim, not the object of sin. So how much have I harmed the millionaire by taking five dollars? Nothing. How much have I harmed Amy by taking five dollars? A lot. So you see, even without talking theology or talking, bringing in, you know, religion, common sense tells you right away stealing from Amy is way worse than stealing from, right? So the more innocent the victim is, the graver the sin. You're with me? And here's another disconnect in our heads. For most people, a baby is more innocent than Jesus. 
And that is a theological heresy. A baby is born with original sin. A baby is, many times have you heard me say that, and I say it this way to shock you on purpose, a baby is a spiritual monster. The baby lacks charity, faith, and hope. The baby lacks the life of God in his soul. That baby, if he dies, not being baptized, cannot go to heaven. That baby is never going to be as innocent as our Lord Jesus Christ is. And the reason why we make that mistake is because we do not know Jesus enough. That's something you really have to work on because there's a trap hidden in that idea that a baby somehow is more innocent than Jesus. He's not. Never will be. The innocence of Jesus is infinite because God is innocent. And Jesus is God. So, when you attack his mother, you're attacking him, and you're hurting him. When you attack his church, you're attacking him, and you're hurting him because it is, she's his bride. And the worst possible sin we can commit, and I can, conf I can tell you, based on the number of people who go to confession, and I go to confession mostly every week, so I know how many people go to confession, less than, I would say, 3% of people who go to church go to confession, That number one sin is the worst. Unworthy reception of the Eucharist. Receiving Jesus in the state of mortal sin. It's worse than abortion. It's worse than rape. It's worse than wars. It's worse than anything else you can do. Because all these other sins are hurting a human being. And no matter how innocent that human being is, his innocence is finite. The innocence of Christ is absolutely infinite. Now, this is not in accord with our reason because these days our reason is driven by our emotions. There is a lot of work for us to do to structure our reason to accord with faith and truth. You cannot love anyone more than you love Jesus. You cannot do that. If you're doing that, you have work to do. You love everyone else through Jesus, but not loving them above him. If you start thinking this way, it will change everything about the way you, you, you attend the liturgy. You know, it's very easy. It's really easy for me to tell how much someone is working on their virtue of piety. Piety is that virtue which give God the honor and glory that is his due by watching them walk in the church, just by the way they walk. Or when they sit, they cross their legs. That says everything. Here's the most holy trinity and they're sitting crossing their legs. Think about it for a second. Or they just, you know, put their arms on the... Or they start chatting. 
just talking about chit-chatting, waiting for the movie to begin. The Most Holy Trinity is right there in front of them, and they're chit-chatting. That says it all. The way they dress. Flip-flops for the guys. Just walking in the church with a flip-flop. Do you go to a wedding wearing flip-flops? Or shorts? Do you? Or if the president is coming here and you are invited to meet the president, do you show up in shorts and flip-flops? And here is the most holy trinity. And we walk in with shorts and flip-flops. How much do you love Jesus? Okay. Now, in all the other sins, in almost every case, God is a secondary victim. So, why is there hell? Why is it eternal? Because the victim that we are attacking is infinitely innocent. And therefore, the crime that is being committed deserves eternal punishment because the victim is infinitely innocent. That is why. Okay. Now, there are some who offer scriptural logical argument that God's mercy will one day end hell. Wisdom 11.24 For thou lovest all things that exist and has loathing for none of the things that thou hast made. Roman 11.32 God has consigned all men to disobedience that they may have mercy upon all. St. Anselm It is not just that God should permit the utter loss of a creature which he made for happiness. Origen, father of the church, argued that God's mercy would eventually free the demons from their punishment. You can see these arguments are not new. We hear them continuously because it's hard for reason alone to accept the reality of hell. But like I said, this error exaggerates God's mercy in one direction, reduces it in another. And like I said, consider the statement, it is not just that God should punish sin, sins men have committed with eternal punishment in hell. And then you flip that and you get, it is not just that God should reward the good that men have committed with eternal happiness in heaven. So you can't have one without the other. Since the saints are in heaven by the mercy and grace of Christ, it follows that their eternal bliss demand by justice and eternal punishment in hell for the damned. And it goes hand in hand with the gravity of the sins. All right. Let's talk about the nature of hell. The nature of hell. How is it to be in hell? Here are six basic things the damned will lose. They're not the sort of things you think about because you hear mostly about fire and brimstone, gnashing of teeth, various very abstract expressions that doesn't, you know, they don't really affect us really. Those do. Let's go through this list. God and heaven, eternal raging regrets that compounds their sufferings. The damned will have the vision of the blessed in heaven forever. And they are going to constantly regret not being able to be there. So just to give you an inkling of this, your neighbor won the lotto 
and you could have won it had you bought the same ticket, but you didn't. Think about that. That is like a, a little thing compared to this regret. So we're starting this as a baseline. Second, personal space. We all love our personal space, don't we? It's a good. It's a good that God gave us. That goes away in hell. No personal space. The damned are packed in a tight space. Really tight. Freedom of movement. We're free to go here or there. That goes away. Hell is a prison. The damned are immobilized, either stuck in crevices, as St. Teresa of Avila saw for herself when God gave her a vision of hell and the spot that was earmarked for her by the demons. It was a hole in a wall, and she was going to be stuck in there, facing that wall. Or piled on top of one another, possibly miles high. Beauty. The bodies of the damned will be as close to monsters as possible without ceasing from being human. So everything that you see in hell hurts your eyes. You're immobilized, really packed close to everybody else. And everything you see around you hurts your eyes. Fresh air. The air will be foul, filled with bodily odors and other foul smells. You're packed on top of each other with bodies as ugly as can be, as smelly as can be. Quiet and peace. We all love our quiet and peace. The screams of the damned will be non-stop, filled with curses and the foulest of language. And then beautiful scenery. The eyes will be constantly tormented by ugliness. Nothing beautiful will be seen inside hell. So you're stuck. You can't move. You're surrounded by people who are cursing you. You're cursing them. You're cursing God. You're hating each other. You're hating heaven. You are having a vision of the blessed, which compounds your regrets for having lost heaven. And that is forever. This is a starting point. Three, four additional torments the damned will experience. Fire. On top of this confinement, there is an unbearable sensation of burning in the soul and the flesh, never ending. So you know how we say, and we're going to talk about purgatory next time, but the pains of purgatory, the slightest pain in purgatory is greater than the greatest pain here on earth. And the fundamental reason is, you understand it with your teeth. Your teeth are enveloping nerves. I just want you to imagine somebody comes and plucks your tooth away, leaving the nerves. Live in your mouth. Can you sense that pain? Okay. What the whole body is like the tooth for the soul. 
You take the body away, the soul is like that nerve. And that's where the punishment is going. So, unbearable sensation of burning in their soul, in their flesh, never ending. Taunting and ridiculed by demons and other damned. A constant reminder of their shame, sin, and failing that precipitated them into hell. Hatred or envy. The hatred the damned will have towards God, the saints, and each other, and their inability to do anything about it will be an added constant torment. And then despair. Every bit of the damned knowledge will add to their suffering. Every memory of what they have done while alive, what they could have done, how could have changed things, will add to their suffering. Do you realize that in some cases the demons are taunting you to see things, watch things, read things, gossip about things, because they know how these are going to be used in hell? This is a spiritual combat. Either you treat it as such and take it seriously, or you're sitting duck. For beings we call demons, who are far smarter than us, far older than us, and hate us with 100% hatred. Okay. Now, I'll remind everybody that God destines no one to hell. Christ died so that all may go to heaven. Those in hell, even if given another chance to go to heaven, would obstinately choose hell. They can't let go of their sins. That obstinacy, that obstinacy is what got them into hell. So if your husband or your wife says to you, you're stubborn, tremble. Being stubborn is the first degree of obstinacy. To be obstinate is to be stubborn. Okay, so now let's talk about how to avoid hell. And here we go. Maybe you can zoom on this, uh, Hanan, so it's a little bit bigger. Thank you. Yeah. See if you can zoom on this. All right. You're going to start with a daily examination of conscience. I don't care how great you think of yourself you are. I don't care if you think you're a saint. I don't care if you go to Mass every day. I don't care if you're praying the rosary every day. If you're not examining your conscience every day, you're in trouble, you're in danger, you're a sitting duck. Simple as that. You're going to examine your conscience every day. Examination of conscience is not, I'm going to torture myself. Right? Examination of conscience takes like five, ten minutes, asking your guardian angel to help you, and just to see your failings during that day. That's it. And it's not accountable. You're not an accountant, okay? You may forget some things, that's okay. But at least if you yelled at your husband, or you shut the door, or you spoke impatiently, or whatever, you see it, you recognize it, and what do you do? You ask yourself, was it a moral sin? To be a moral sin, you know it's a grave matter, 
you know that if you commit it, it will be mortal sin, and you choose to do it. If you did that, you committed a mortal sin. I got news for you. Most of us in our life have committed mortal sins. Okay? We're fallen human beings. The Lord knows that. So there's no point in being dramatic about it. Okay, we fell. whoop de doo So what do we do about it? And you repeat. Immediately Does ask God to forgive you. Can you die? Right there and then. Every day. Lord, okay. That is... I messed up. I'm really sorry. This is how you avoid... I'm going to do better. But if immediately. you think, okay, oh, I'm going to immediately. do this, go to Don't mass delay. once a week, right on Sunday. After that, I can forget about God. And I go to heaven. Like I said to you last week, it'd be like me saying, oh, I'm going to become a Marine. I'm going to go to, you know, Camp Pendleton. One hour a week. Show up with shorts and flip-flops. Do half of the training. Kind of well because I'm distracted. And I'll become a Marine. All right. I think I may be out of time, but I would like to point out to you, there are a few appendices in here. I'm not gonna cover them right now. I'll just show them to you. I have a, a slide, you can read about it, which is the sin against the Holy Spirit, taken from St. Thomas Aquinas. And then I have what is called the anti-fac on hell. For those of you who know what an FAQ, a fact is, it's a frequently, it's a list of frequently asked questions. Right? It's a nerdy term we use to have a page on web to say, okay, here are the frequently asked questions and the answers. And the anti-fact, it is an infrequently asked questions. Because nobody wants to ask any question about hell. So nobody asks the question. Well, they're there with answers. Enjoy. Okay, so I'm going to stop here. And then um, we're going to open up to Q&A. And like I said, Father is going to be in the church for... Those of you who are inspired to go to confession, and uh, otherwise we'll uh, take questions. But Hannah, do you want to close it first? Allow people to leave if they want to. How do you want to do that, sweetie? Okay. Um, so as Dad mentioned, we are going to go ahead and do a concluding prayer. Uh, those of you who need to get going, please do so. Uh, as my dad also mentioned, Abuna will be in the church for confession. That will be made available. Um, and then, of course, uh, you are free to pose your questions afterwards. Um, and we'll probably keep it within 20, 25 minutes at most, just because I know it is late and um, I need to lock the church up before we, we go through the hall. Um, so with that, if you will please stand. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for letting us meditate upon your word, for giving us the grace to come together as a community and to learn more about you and about ourselves. We pray, Lord, that you may strengthen us through the intercession of your blessed mother and our guardian angels to remain firm upon the path of which you've set us on, to repent from our sins, and to take this time of Lent to truly look at you and ask for the graces we need to never fall away from the church. Lord, bless us and help us to help each other. Help us to continue to be witnesses of your faith and help us to never let go so that at the end of our lives, we may hear those words, welcome into your heaven. 
the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Yes. I'm starting right there. Yes. Go ahead. Okay, so the question is, what is the fault of the infants? They didn't choose to do anything. They didn't do any fault. So why, they, why don't they go to heaven, right? Yes. The answer is heaven is a family. It's the family of God. In order for anyone to go to heaven, they need to become children of God. You're with me? Now, when we say children of God, we literally mean children of God. It's not an image. We are truly the children of God. Okay? My children and I share one thing, which is human nature. That's what we share in common. God is divine. We're human. How could a human being become the child of a divine being? You see that? There needs to be a transformation. That transformation starts with baptism and continues through our life and requires Holy Communion. Amen, amen. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's no divine life in you. That's what communion does. You take a baby, not baptized, transformation doesn't happen. He cannot become divine. Therefore, he is excluded from heaven. You understand? Oh, we are sad. Everybody's sad. That is the problem with Adam and Eve. That's what they started. And that's what we continue when we don't baptize babies. Hey, by the way, pe people from the Middle East or from Mexico. Okay? Do not wait more than four weeks to baptize the baby. I don't care if your mother-in-law is going to be sad or not. I don't care if your people are going to come from Mexico or from Mars. I don't care. Baptize the baby immediately when all the family comes together. Hey, celebrate. Don't wait. You're testing. You're tempting God. Don't do that. Okay. Yes, aborted kids is the same deal. They are not baptized and therefore will not go to heaven. There's one added problem with aborted kids that is different from, let's say, miscarried baby out from in a family of people who are not uh, Catholic or not baptized. The problem with abortion is that it's not just the fact that we are killing a baby. We are, the mother is cursing the baby. And those curses and blessings are real. So it is very difficult to deal with this. And it's not that easy to find a theological argument to say, oh, they're in heaven. Look, at the emotional level, we all want them to be in, in, in heaven. But I honestly think that in some sense, we may want them to be in heaven, so we don't have to think about it. But it's a hard problem. 
they are not baptized, and that's all there is to it. So they're not going to be in heaven. You're right. They're not going to hell. Like what our best position is that of St. Thomas Aquinas, who teaches that these children will live in a state after the resurrection, after the end, end times, will live in a state of natural beatitude, the way Adam and Eve lived on earth. They will be happy, all right? They will be happy, but they will not be able to see the, um, the beatific vision. Yeah. Yes. Frank, hold on a minute. Yes. So the limbo of the fathers, right? The limbo of the fathers is that state, that side of Hades or, or Sheol, where all the just who were entitled to go to heaven by their own merits and by the passion of Christ were waiting for Christ to pay their debt for them. And when Christ went and saw them, remember the baptism by desire? All of them wanted to be baptized. Right? So all of them, a truckload of them, went to heaven with him. Make sense? Okay. Frank? Well, like I said, the baby is not baptized. The baby is dead. And there's nothing you can do about it. No. We cannot baptize the dead. We're not Mormons. So no, this is the that's the price of sin, and it's hard. It's hard wrenching. That's what it is. Look, let me be very clear. Yeah, hold on, guys. I just want to clarify something. The church is saying we have no authority as a church. God gave the church the seven sacraments and said, "This is what you're going to do." That's the boundary of the church. God is completely free to act outside the boundary of the sacraments. But we have not found a theological argument that marries the idea that somebody can go to heaven without baptism. That is not, never going to work because it's a dogma. You need baptism to go to heaven. So then we have no way to work around it. And trust me, a lot of theologians work on it and we're stuck. Okay. Yes. So in the case of a miscarriage of a woman who is a believer, the baptism by desire carries forward. That's what I'm saying. The baptism by desire carries forward. Because the woman wishes to bless her baby, God is going to honor her. The blessing of a parent is very powerful. No, it's over. Because in the case of an abortion, you're cursing the baby. That was your decision. And the baby, the body is gone. And it was never your desire to have that baby go to heaven. On the moment when the baby died. You understand? There's nothing retroactive here. We don't have retroactive powers. None of us has retroactive powers to say, oh, I want this to have happened. No, it, it happened. This is how it was. That's the end of it. You understand? Yeah. 
hold on, hold on. Uh, someone over there, there's a question? No? Okay. Yes. Well, not quite. What we're saying is that we know, and it's a dogma, that in order to go to heaven, you must be baptized. You're with me? Okay. That, that, that's, now, this is important because otherwise, if we just say, if, if the church seems to say we just don't know, the church is implying somehow that you can go without being baptized. But that's not what the church is saying at all. We're saying maybe there is a way, God's mercy, for him to do something that still adjusts everything together. That we don't know. Which is why the church does have not found a way to declare these, these babies in heaven. That's it. So yes, we don't know what God could do outside the sacraments, but we know baptism is required. So you have to combine both, and we don't know. Yes. Yes, sir. No, I am saying when a miscarriage happens, good question, thank you for bringing it up. There is not even a need to baptize anything. Like I know some people with the medical scare happen and try to find the body and then do but you can do that if you want. It's absolutely unnecessary. If the mother is a, let's say let's take the situation of a Catholic mother who loves her children and has been baptizing them and she's pregnant and she miscarries. Her intention, intention of the father, is to have that baby baptized. That desire God will honor. Make sense? So then the, so the question is, did Jesus go only into the limbo of the fathers or did he also go into hell proper? And the answer, my, my answer is that he went into both. He went into the limbo of the fathers to open the gates of heaven for them. And he went into the, the depth of hell because he's conquering. And like St. Paul says, every knee in the book of Revelation, every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth shall bend at the name of Jesus Christ. So it's him conquering even hell. And here's the title for our Lord, Lord of hell. Bear with me. Yes, okay. Okay, uh, so I have two quick ones. The first one, uh, uh, you said earlier it sounded as if it But in Matthew 5, there seems to be a duration and therefore not eternal. So if you pay the last penny, um, I don't know which version of the scriptures they're using. I have to go back and look at the one I'm using. Um, so it is possible that in this say, I in the sense of Gehenna has been also used for purgatory, but that is purgatory, not hell. Okay? And we'll get to that in uh, a couple of weeks. Next question? Excellent lectures. 
beautiful question. The question is, why did Dante, if some of you have read the Divine Comedy, Dante follows the soul of a dam going into hell. And he describes, in his understanding, the structure of hell. And the deepest levels of hell, where, where Satan is, frozen. That's because, and it's very smart on Dante's part, when things are frozen, you can't move. You're stuck. You see where I'm going with this? So it's a kind of fire that freezes. All right? It's a sort of a fire that is as cold as Antarctica, but it's fire. Ice burns, right? That's why it was ended this way, to indicate the loss of all these freedom. That's why. Okay. Aquilina. Can you make it more concrete? I'm not understanding the question. Yeah. Uh, the curse is that you felt the baby. And you wish for the baby not to live. And the curse was in effect, baby died. It's over. There's nothing you can do about it. You cannot baptize kids after death. Yes, sir. You cannot baptize while they are in the womb. You have to baptize a living being outside the womb. You with me? Yeah. If a mother is Christian, and wants her children to be baptized, and she has a miscarriage, God will honor her desire, and that desire will act as baptism, and the baby will go straight to heaven. You're with me? But when the mother says, I want an abortion, she's saying, I don't want that child to live. And when you don't want someone to live, you're cursing them. God is going to honor this. That's free will. The child dies, Child's dead. Yes. Okay, so two things. First question is, dying in the state of grace is not given to everyone. There is something called sudden death. And then if somebody dies suddenly, what is our obligation towards that person? First of all, it is our obligation to pray to avoid sudden death. That's the grace that God wants to give everyone, but only if you ask. Okay? Yeah, because when they do that, they're not understanding the heart of the battle. They're thinking somehow, this is, this is the poison in people's minds. Heaven is guaranteed. Right? How many times do you hear people say, oh, yeah, 
or she went to a better place. Right? It is so scary to hear that because number one, if that person's in purgatory, nobody's gonna pray for you. Right? I'm washing my hands. They went to a better place. We're done. That's one. Two, they're thinking heaven is a cakewalk. Everybody goes to heaven. Of course, everybody goes to heaven. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't murder. I didn't do any terrible things. So I'm going to heaven. I hope I scared you enough to understand that's a demon's trap. You don't want, you do not want a sudden death. If you have cancer, it's a wonderful blessing. Because cancer is nothing compared to the least suffering you're going to suffer in purgatory. So you have a chance to skip purgatory and go straight to heaven. Amazing. Look at it as a grace, because that's what it is. God's giving you a chance to repent, to get your things in order, to really offer all your sufferings, which are nothing compared to what you're going to suffer in purgatory or in hell. It's a wonderful grace. And be not afraid of dying. Be afraid of the second death. That's what we should be. Yes. Of course. No, he gives to all. God gives. The question is that he chooses to whom? God wants everyone in heaven. And therefore, God gives to everyone all the graces sufficient to make it to heaven. Meaning that when you ever watch the personal judgment, you're going to be flabbergasted at how many graces God gave that person. It's going to blow your mind away. So, no, everybody gets sufficient graces to go to heaven. That's what God wants. Make sense? Okay. Yes, sir. Is the miscarriage? Well, it's really it's really difficult to find out why there's a miscarriage. I don't think it's just purely. So the question is: Is miscarriage God calling the child back to him? That could be the case, but it simply could be to original sin and the defects of human nature that we have to put up with. There are a variety of reasons why somebody or a woman has a miscarriage, right? What is really key is for the parents to be God-fearing, God-loving, and wanting their children to be baptized. Because then, if there is a miscarriage, of course there is sadness. This is not what you want. But also there is joy. You have a saint in heaven. Okay? Frank? Yeah, I have a... You mentioned limbo. No, you don't have to worry about it. You're right. As far as we're concerned, only three departments we have to worry about. Heaven, purgatory, and death. The other ones, the purgatory of the uh, of the fathers was a place for the people in the Old Testament, like Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, David, St. Joseph, to be waiting for the gates of heaven to open when Christ rose from the dead. Now that he did, that is empty. There's no, there's no more waiting place. Limbo of the infants is for children who die, babies who die are not baptized. Okay? 
No, that's separate. They don't suffer like people in purgatory. Yeah. There's no suffering for them. But they're waiting for the final judgment. And the best theology we have is that after when earth is renewed, they will live on earth in a state of natural beatitude. They'll be very happy, but they will not have access to beatific vision. Okay? Yes. Oh, very good question. So, if Jesus did go to hell, since hell is the absence of God, wouldn't that imply that he went there and suddenly hell is not hell? Only insofar as he brings this mercy. That is judgment. Oh, sorry. Only insofar as he goes to hell to bring his love and, and mercy with him, not his judgment. So I said, and those are all theological opinions. This is not teaching, all right? Uh, that he did go to hell to assert his authority over it, to break the authority of, the, of, the, of, of, of Satan. That's all. But it's just an opinion. You're with me? Okay. Uh, yes. Yes, you. Yeah. No. Yeah, if a, if a miscarriage occurred when the woman was not Catholic, there is no desire in her heart to baptize the baby. It's over. There is no retro, think of it this way. There is no retroactive baptism. That's it. That's the desire. It's enough. Okay. So in the case of the example that I gave about the little baby, the little girl and the millionaire, I wasn't focusing so much on innocence as I was focusing on the fact that the way you measure the effect of sin is by its effect on the people it's hurting. You're with me? And that's how I was giving the example that the same five bucks that you see from the little girl is of a different caliber than the five bucks you see from the millionaire. You're with me? Yeah. Now, what I said was that sin is truly measured. The effect of sin is measured by the innocence of the victim. What is innocence? It is being free from sin. That's being innocent. And that applies eminently to our Lord. Make sense? Okay. Yes? Oh, how much influence or power has the father does the father have? He has as as much as as much authority as the mother, right? I'm sorry. A couple, father's Catholic, but the mother is not. The mother has no wish to baptize. The father does. Is that 
Okay, the question is, if you have a family with one member being Catholic, let's say the father, and the mother is not, and the, and the mother has a miscarriage, the father wishes for, this, for the child to go to heaven, what will God do? We err on the side of mercy. Okay? Yes, Helen. Uh, how can we sin against the Holy Spirit? Okay. Here we go. Despair, presumption, impugning the truth, envy of another spiritual good, obstinacy and sin, final impenitence, and I will also add blasphemy of the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's my personal opinion. The first six are from St. Thomas. Despair, the thought that God can no longer save us. Presumption, overconfidence in our ability to gain salvation without God. That happens a lot today. Everybody's going to heaven because we're good people. Impugning the truth, willfully and actively attacking, distorting, contradicting a spiritual matter when we know it to be true. Envy of another spiritual good. Oh, look. Like uh, Father Scott, uh, bear with me. I'll get to you in a minute. Father Scott uh, at St. Mary's was mentioning the situation of a man who was never baptized all his life. Then on his deathbed, he gets to be baptized, confirmed, receive communion, and literally less than a minute later, he died. And he was like, you know, I couldn't feel by you know, jealous of this guy. I mean, this guy's straight one-way ticket to heaven, regardless of what done before. Everything is gone. Baptism wipes out all your sins, punishment, everything is gone. It's a free ticket. Come on, Jack. You're laying in bed. You got baptism, confirmation, communion once in your life. And you just go straight to heaven. So you can be envious of something like this. That is a sin against the Holy Spirit. Specifically the Holy Spirit. That's what St. Thomas is saying. Obstinacy and sense commonly using the power and gifts of the Holy Spirit includes willful ignorance of the virtues and a refusal to fight against our vices. Willful ignorance of the virtues. Like, we're not going to study virtues. We don't want them to know what they are. Oh, we're good. And are certainly not going to work our, against our vices. Hey, I like to drink. Leave me alone. Okay. I am going to leave you alone. The demons won't. Good luck. Final impediment. Consistent and explicitly rejecting God and his mercy. All right. Answer your question? Yes. No. Purgatory is one way. There's no more choice. Choice to be made here. And then someone in purgatory is suffering. And we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But they're going straight to heaven. All right. Yes. No, God inflicting punishment on you. Well, the fact that God retracts his presence from you is punishment enough. Because what is sin? Sin is not a thing. Sin is the absence of something, which is grace or love. So 
if God, by merely retracting his love from someone, that's punishment enough. You're with me? But definitely God is doing that. So the mercy of God allows the saints in heaven to um, shine like stars. That's their glory. Right? The ecstasy that somebody feels in heaven is all given by God as a reward for what they have done and their union with him. So, likewise, the separation from God is fire. The fact that you're being tortured by demons is fire. The fact that each everybody in heaven in hell are torturing each other, where in heaven everybody is loving each other, is punishment enough. Okay. Yes, but the taking away of grace is punishment. Let's not forget that. Because you heard it from the scriptures. God will, by his justice, right, bring retribution against those who persecute. So I don't want ever anyone to think that God is passively sitting there thinking, oh, well, you know, you, whatever happens to you over there, I have nothing to do with it. The danger with this is that we stop fearing God. And that's the worst poison for us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? Yes. So, the fathers, and then logic. Every good that we possess comes from God. In hell, they're taken away. What's the consequence? Start thinking. You'll arrive to that conclusion, that in hell, there's no going to a walk in the park. There's no beautiful trees. Right? All of those things are blessings, are graces, natural or otherwise, that God gave us. They're taken away. There is one, but I don't have access to her writings yet. And she's her name is Saint Giovanna, Giovanni, Giuliani, Saint Veronica Giuliani. I'm getting there. Be patient. For goodness sake. Saint Veronica Giuliani. She visited hell 13 times and then indicated that the fourth lowest levels of hell are reserved for the clergy. Okay. I don't have I don't have any reference of hers yet. It's not published in English yet. Yeah. Yes. Who? Joe, you have a question? Okay. Yes. There is no higher than the priest. Okay. Okay. There is no sin against the Holy Spirit. Abortion is not a sin against the Holy Spirit. There is no sin against the Holy Spirit that a priest cannot forgive. Right? There are some sins like abortion that require a bishop because abortion 
when a woman has an abortion, she has she suffers instant excommunication. Murder? No. No. Specifically abortion. So that's why you require a bishop to incorporate you back in the life of the church. But it's not sitting as also. Right? Yeah, in the back. Yes, you. Baptism takes everything out, which is why some people in the past would wait until their deathbed to be baptized. Which is a, it's a wrong thing to do. I'll tell you right away. Okay, I'll tell you. Don't be tempted. Don't do that. It's a wrong idea, because if God's going to baptize you now, He intends on giving you all the graces for you to shine like a star in heaven. He, that guy, might shine like an LED. He has no, no um, uh, merits to his name. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Okay, yes. Excuse me. Pretty much all of them. Like I have the FAQ. If you go through it, I'll cover all of those. But yes, it is dark. Yes, it is a physical fire. It's a spiritual fire. Um, um, I didn't touch gnashing and wailing teeth, but basically what it means is this constant screaming that never stops. So all of that is not figurative. It is real, by large. So the worm in question is what, what St. Thomas, St. Thomas touches on it. And his point is that it's not physical. The worm represents regrets. The worm in your mind that never stops, right? But I've answered all those in FEQ. I don't have time to go through it right now, okay? All right, honey. Okay, I am going to close so that way you guys have time. If you would like to ask some more questions afterwards, my dad will be here for a bit, um, but then that gives me time to reorganize the hall and close it up. So thank you for coming tonight. And we'll see you next Wednesday. Thank you.